Welcome back to The Reboot Show. I'm Sally A. Illingworth, your host, and I'm excited because today I'm joined by three panellists to have a conversation about the future of work and recruitment. Today we're joined by Russell Fairbanks, who is the Director of Luminary Partners, Alicia Roach, who is the Director and Founder of QHR, and Amy Smith, who is our regular panellist here on The Reboot Show. Welcome, everyone. Hi, Sally. Hey. To get started, it'd be great to um, sort of hear from you, Russell, around your thoughts on what the future of work actually means. We hear this word thrown around a lot, um, but in many cases, it can be quite hard to fathom what it actually means. So how would you describe the future of work and why is it strategically important for businesses? Yeah, great questions there, Sally. And I think, uh, if anything, COVID has brought this home uh, more rapidly than anyone could have envisaged. It was quite an abstract concept for some um, a, a near-term reality that uh, we are working our way towards um, a future where, for the average person on the street, it's the fear of jobs being taken by robots. Um, the truth, of course, is it's here today. Um, and what we've seen with the pandemic event and people being forced to remote and flexible working, uh, working from their kitchen tables, um, juggling barking dogs and Amazon deliveries and uh, the groceries being left at the front door is that um, technology is the enabler to um, a workforce trend of increased mobility and uh, uh, the future of work which, which is here now is not actually going to be about technology um, as some might argue it's going to be about talent so um, for all of us those that are showing a capacity and willingness to learn to learn, um, the workplace is going to be one that's defined by continually building new skills, um, adding to your experiences as, as roles change and evolve. And uh, I think for many, the, the reality is the roles that they do today will not be the roles they do in 10 years time. And certainly for new entrants to um, the workforce, um, they'll, they'll uh, I think studies will show that they will have, you know, somewhere between two and a half and three different careers in, in their working future, which is obviously very different to the workplace many of us entered. Yeah, and I think you raised a great point around the future of work being more about talent than technology, because I think, you know, it is easy for us to get into this conversation around how artificial intelligence is going to make redundant the human. And so it becomes quite overwhelming. Um, but from a technology standpoint, it'd be great to hear from you, Alicia, in terms of how are you seeing or how are you using technology to sort of transform the way that businesses uh, recruit, lead and manage talent, um, particularly amid the entire COVID dynamic? Yeah, I think it's really interesting because basically it's all up for grabs now. We're seeing the who, the what, the where, the why, the how. It's all changing, all, all of that to do with work. And, and I think for organisations, they're really having to rethink uh, both their operating models but also the workforce mix that's required to deliver those. And I think Russell made a really great point. I think um, the technology and talent kind of trajectories really have to be looked at together. Uh, so, yes, we've got robots coming. And I love this example that uh, sprung to mind when Russell was talking. My husband prior to COVID travelled a lot for work and he was in San Francisco and there was a huge gathering on the sidewalk and they were all watching this robot barista. And it was making the perfect cup of coffee every time, apparently. And it didn't actually have a, um, a beard or witty banter or skinny beard, <laughs> but it did a pretty good cup of coffee. Uh, but what we saw, I got my husband to film it for me because working alongside this Roborista with three humans. So there were three people there helping customers to put their order in, getting them comfortable with the technology, 
really creating that customer engagement with the Roborista. And I think that's a really important consideration because technology is there, but we still need humans and there's this interplay between them both. And for us, that's really key in understanding those trajectories and how they shape and shift because technology is a great enabler, but talent is the source of competitive advantage for organisations. So we can't forget that in the midst of all the robots are coming noise. I love that. I love that you raise around sort of balancing that trajectory and, you know, sort of um, Luke Stowe, who's actually a, a panelist on our show, a regular panelist with us. He always says the people are the last frontier. And I think that's certainly what you're highlighting. Um, but for that, Amy, I know that you've uh, got extensive experience around sort of particularly millennial leadership and sort of, you know, uh, work in the, the human resources space. So what are your thoughts in the context of this conversation about some of the biggest misconceptions about what the future of work actually means and maybe what it looks like? Yeah, well, I think there'll be a few more baristas now that are a bit worried about their jobs after uh, Alicia's comment there. Um, but, you know, you hear stat, uh, stats thrown up all the time, like, you know, by 2030, 50% of US jobs are going to be automated and all of these sorts of things. And it can feel a little bit confronting and can feel a little bit scary for a lot of people. Um, but it actually means that people are going to be able to do more meaningful work. So when you think about, um, as an example, you know, in the customer service space, you now have AI technology and, and enablement in terms of those customer support sort of chat enablements that a lot of companies have, which means that, you know, maybe some of the basic questions can be answered, you know, through technology, but then, you know, it does get to a human at some level in that process and that human can actually do higher level problem solving where they're going to probably feel more engaged. They're going to be working at a higher level with that customer. Um, and so all of the, I guess, heavy lifting is sort of done by technology but the um, person at the end of it can actually be more engaged in the work that they're doing. So I think that's a, a real big shift um, that we're seeing is that like Alicia and, and Russell both just said there, it is about the talent, not just the technology. So I think there's a huge fear factor uh, in the future of work where there actually doesn't need to be because we're already in it. <laughs> we're already mm. doing it. Um, and so I think for a lot of people, it's just uh, getting through that, that fear factor. And I love the reference to meaningful work. And I think that sort of transitions well into a conversation about, I know before we jumped on this panel, um, it was mentioned, I can't remember if it was by yourself, Russell, um, or yourself, Alicia, around how the, the human resources role, if you like, mm. very sort of moved away from being a business partner function and sort of got into this space of being and an order-taking order role, which is quite interesting. So thinking yeah. about the future of work, the future of recruitment, uh, the relationship between human and technology did you want to dive into that a little bit for us alicia and what you mean by how that the the biz uh, sorry the human resource function has actually evolved and are we seeing it go back to more of a strategic business partner function for businesses yeah it's it's a great question and i know we had this uh discussion and it was lively and it, it is a lively one because i think for hr functions uh they've certainly been on a journey of evolution and mm. You know, we go back to the 70s and it was very much administrative and process driven. And then we really saw in the last 10 years or so this emergence of this strategic business partner kind of role. Uh, but where that ended up, and, and certainly we've seen it play out in a lot of organisations, is an over-rotation uh, to what we kind of consider an order taker. So HR had been asking for this seat at the table for a long time, but they ended up there as a good listener. So they were taking all the directives from the business 
and going forth and running around. And, and there was a bit of a loss of functional integrity in that. And we even saw organisations, including some of Australia's largest, say, well, we don't actually have an HR strategy. Our HR strategy is the business strategy. And it does seem noble. And we certainly want, as, as a support function, to enable our businesses. However, we need to bring that functional integrity because we get that coherence in what we're doing and we're getting that consistency in what we're doing across the organisation. And if we don't have that functional integrity, things get lost and we don't really make that connection of our people to our purpose. And that's really what we're trying to do as an HR function. We're mm. trying to link our people who are the execution vehicle for our strategy to our purpose. And that's the fundamental thing that kind of got lost, I think, in the way. And I think it's coming back around, which is great. And would you say on that note, Amy, um, just thinking about millennials, and I know that there's stats that I think it's by 2025, 75% of the workforce thereabouts is going to be represented by millennial workers. Do you feel like millennials and sort of up and coming millennial leaders are sort of helping to maybe drive some of these transformations and to, to Alicia's point, help businesses realise that they really need to connect the people to purpose because we know that that's a major thing for millennials. Yeah, absolutely. The, you know, the want to make an impact is quite huge for millennials. Um, and so when they're in the workplace, they're always looking for that purpose link and that impact link. So I think, yeah, the, the, one of the biggest misconceptions around millennials is that they're just starting off in the workplace when, sorry, that's Gen Z now, you know, millennials. Um, you know, they're coming through. Yeah, exactly. They are in leadership positions now. And so they are driving a lot of this. And we do have up to five different generations in the workplace. So it's less really the way I see it. It's less about age and it's more about mindset. You know, everyone can have that mindset to want to do better, um, to drive that purpose as well. So, yeah, I see that they are definitely driving it um, because a lot of the things that I guess were sort of um, wants for older generations in the workforce are now just mm. expectations uh, for millennials and some of the younger generations. So I guess they're kind of less willing to put up with it um, for want of a better term. And they're just really uh, driving it. Yeah. So in the context of sort of making sure that we're repositioning HR strategies in businesses to ensure that we are connecting the people to the purpose, um, whilst also being considerate to how technology is advancing and how it can actually, um, I've heard you say before, Amy, enhance the role of the worker. Russell, what are your thoughts in terms of what leaders should be thinking about when they are considering adopting technology in the business? What are some of the things they really need to consider to maximise the success of actually um, adopting technologies to, to help? their people yeah great question and and really it's quite simple um putting the people your humans at the center of the organizational design and how technology is used i'll just very quickly come back to that point that um amy made and it sort of builds on alicia's earlier point as well about this generational shift that's occurring because mm. anybody who might have doubted that now is the time to really looking at look at cross-generational workforce um you know you only have to look at you know one of australia's largest companies yesterday appointed the youngest female non-executive director bridget Loudon, 32 uh if, if you're looking for statement of intent that uh the gen x is the older pale stale uh males uh, uh having to depart and, and make way for for the trailblazers. Um, and, and in fact, the people whose experiences have, have been formed on entering the workplace during uh, a global financial crisis, making the most during what has been a slow growth economy, 
to a reality now of of reframe reframing your career in a pandemic where purpose is going to be at the center of the organization the organizations that are thriving and um in fact coming coming through um the covid reality today are those organizations that are thinking very seriously about wellness um you know what what is the well-being of our um of our employees and our, our stakeholder groups um mm. and that is exactly the space where uh leaders ceos are going to be looking for technology solutions they're going to be looking for advisory support particularly from um hr in a strategic sense to guide them through that process and and look for for leaders however accomplished they are and what they've achieved pre-covid uh, they too are going to have to step up to the plate and learn to learn new skills um, in a completely new operating environment. Yeah, I think just on that point as well, Russell, it's a shame that it's taken a pandemic for a lot of organisations to realise that because, mm. yeah. you know, there's been conversations for a long time before the pandemic and I even knew millennial leaders, uh, you know, a millennial leader that I know uh, was in his organisation and overheard a conversation with some of his senior leaders talking about how they don't believe in remote work and that it's a privilege and that they better have a good reason to request that. And so for him, overhearing that conversation, it actually made him question everything about his career, question what he was doing at that organisation. So I think to that point, you know, there's been a lot of corporate inertia, um, a lot mm. of people that haven't been brave enough to maybe make the changes that have been necessary. Um, and it's a shame it's taken a pandemic, but I think we're moving in the right direction. It's yeah. a great point. I think, mm. uh, you know, where we saw the rate of change heading was that the rate of change generally out there with technology and everything was exponential. Yeah. And then organisations were kind of bumbling along at this logarithmic pace. And so there's this widening gap between where society and life was moving and where organisations were. And it actually often does take some sort of shock to disrupt that bottom curve and, and get organisations to step up. Unfortunately, it has been such a, you know, unforeseen level of shock to get that change. But you're right. I think this is the new normal. The bell cannot be unrung. Where yeah. Um, and look, the common feedback from managers in what I would probably typify as low trust organizational structures is that, you know, my, my people can't work from home. I, I need to manage them. I need to, I need to know what they're doing. I need to see what their outputs are. Well, every client uh, bar none that I have uh, interacted with in the last four or five months have reported the same, um, the same phenomenon, which is, productivity has actually increased, um, engagement initially increased, and their concern now, um, and, and by concern I mean a small c concern, is given the increase in productivity and the fact that people are now disconnected or connected through machines working from home, what is their mental health like? Are, are they well? Are they, is that productivity sustainable? What can we do to support them? And how can we support them back into a safe workplace when we're ready to do that? Mm. Which obviously for people in Melbourne is going to be a 2021 uh, challenge. So in the context yeah. of, of reviewing and assessing and trying to understand um, the performance of your human capital, if you like, 
Um, you know, I know prior to this panel that um, sort of it was mentioned and we briefly discussed the fact that traditionally when it came to human resources, we, we tend to take quite a qualitative approach to reviewing it. So it'd be great to hear from you, Alicia, maybe to kickstart the conversation around what are you seeing from a technology standpoint around new approaches, disruptive approaches, if you like, to sort of monitoring and reviewing and understanding the performance of human capital from a quantitative perspective? Yeah, I think it was, it's a great one because we really saw, again, a, a funny trend in the last few years where people completely did away with performance ratings. So it was just, it, it went completely qualitative. Uh, and where we saw a lot of our clients emerge out of that was go, well, we've got no way to now really start to analyse the data to create links to performance and other things like business performance, engagement, source of talent, all of those kind of things. Uh, so again, we've, we're coming back around off that view because data is absolutely critical here. Conceptual discussions around any aspect of the employee life cycle just don't cut through. You can... It's basically every person bringing their own view of the world and there's no way to kind of ground that out into a fact-based discussion and create that link to, again, the link of people to purpose, it is both qualitative and quantitative. And it needs to be quantitative because we still need to ground out in organisations, what are we trying to do and how are we going to do that? And that how we go, are going to do that manifest through the activities that the organisation does and then the underlying skills and capabilities to do those activities. And then we need to measure the effectiveness of those activities. All of that needs to be done quantitatively. And mm. so where we're really seeing the technology drive around that is bringing all these many moving parts together in holistic ways and integrating and getting the insights that we can actually see proactively what's on what's happened and what might be happening so that we can really get the right strategies in place for us because again i've just re-emphasized conceptual discussions just don't get you there they often don't create any call to action and they just go around and around in circles and we and with these advancements in data insights um for say the traditional role of the hr function in a business amy what are your thoughts on on what does this mean how does this potentially improve the experience of the worker of the talent in an organization yeah well, i think it's a, a great point because if you look at that employee life cycle uh, there are plenty of technology tools you know that hr departments would use maybe at either end-to-end -end or for particular areas for instance, in recruitment, like application uh, applicant tracking systems, and then you've got your learning and development systems, and then all the different communication tools in between. So I think for, um, for an employee point of view as well, um, knowing that you've got that technology solutions to make your life better at work and make that interaction easier with the HR department uh, is pretty crucial as well because sometimes there's a lot of barriers there. So I think sometimes the technology um, can really help to remove some of those barriers and give the employees maybe access to information um, that they need rather than going through the, the HR department. Sometimes the experience can be seen as, you know, quite fluffy experience, mm -hmm. whereas that technology, uh, those technology solutions really put their employee in control and allow them to own their careers a little bit more within those organisations. So I think mm -hmm. we're seeing a switch there. And from a leadership perspective, Russell, what are your thoughts in terms of how maybe these advances in data insights for the mm -hmm. HR function, how can that help leaders to maybe reconsider how they design organisational structures? 
Yeah, again, a good question. I mean, the data is um, is only one part of the story, of course, um, because it, it, it gives you the reference point. It's what you do with it next. And I think from a leadership perspective, it's being open and willing to look at skills and experience um, and its portability or mobility in an organisation in a different way. Just because somebody started their career um, as an accounts payable clerk, um, it uh, doesn't mean that that is their defined career path and certainly not in uh, the workplace of 2020. You should be considering, you know, what skills and experiences have they gained in the workplace, what, what, what they have done externally to the organisation, where they might fit in the future organisational structure. I think when it comes to performance, there's another interesting um, point, which we have been under equipped for a long time um, and certainly having worked in uh, European and, and US markets, I find this quite interesting that Australians who are normally very comfortable giving frank and fearless advice um, in social settings, in a work situation aren't always as open and transparent with their feedback. So I think there's a, but with that data, it's learning how you can provide that information to an employee, to a team member in a constructive way that actually builds the performance outcomes you're looking for. 100%. I couldn't agree more. The data is the uh, opening door for the great conversations that it then drives. I, I absolutely couldn't agree more. And when thinking about some sort of like competing in different markets and just maybe how different countries approach HR, I think, you know, just more generally speaking from a sector perspective, you know, um, I think what we're really highlighting in this conversation is that people are at the forefront, no matter what may happen with technology. And as a result, people are a competitive edge for businesses. So when thinking about, you know, these advancements of technology that actually equip and enable the HR function to sort of do a better job effectively, what, what are your thoughts on what we're seeing at a board level in terms of maybe board transformations that are happening in terms of adopting a more people-centric strategy or, for example, uh, recruiting people at a board level who have that people HR focus? Are we seeing changes in that spaces, space? Maybe we'll start with you, Alicia. Yeah, uh, I, think, I think just something you touched on then, absolutely. I, I've, it's always amazed me that people are the centre of an organisation. They are the organisation. Uh, and the lack of uh, kind of planning and discipline given to thinking about that in a, a forward-looking way has just, you know, been so amazing to me because every other function uses data and planning so extensively and HR just has been kind of the last one to do that. And you're quite right, uh, our workforce is the source of our competitive, competitive advantage and it also is usually the largest cost. Uh, so largest cost, largest asset, why aren't we optimising that in the same way? And I think it is something that is hitting the board radar now. I think our boards are now asking questions like, well, what skills does our business need to meet its objectives and how will that change over time? And what is our strategy that we've got in place to make sure that we're mitigating any risks to executing our strategy? And, and it's really starting to, uh, you know, uh, the seat at the table at the board level for, for HR typically was just REM, I think, many years. Um, now it's kind of evolved into a, a bit broader around culture and leadership. But now I think uh, organisations are very quickly realising that their ability to execute their purpose and their strategy and their operations is dependent on the workforce. The workforce is the execution vehicle. We can't just set a strategy and hope that the workforce will materialise. We now need to actually proactively plan around that. 
And Amy, what are your thoughts in terms of how maybe um, this sort of approach from a, at a board level can sort of help organisations as they seek to plan their future workforce? Yeah, it's a great question because it is about that strategic approach as well. You know, when we talk about technology, it has to be applied to strategy as well. And so having that seat at the boardroom table allows the, the context to come into play because you can actually get some, some great data and report it into the board. But if no one's there to actually really be able to interpret that from what's going on, you know, you can get uh, an engagement survey and your employees can fill out an engagement survey and can it can show that you're doing really well, everyone's really engaged and you can present that to the board, but it might not show some of the nuances with that, that someone with that experience from a HR level can actually detect. You know, for instance, 67% of millennials now in, in organisations are thinking about starting their own businesses. And that's a real threat to organisations. And that would never show up in an engagement survey. Yeah. But when you've got someone there that has the context and that that pulse, if you like, that, that radar um, to interpret that information on a board level, it's going to really help drive strategy. Mm. And Russell, what are your thoughts in terms of what organisations can do to ensure, or is there no easy way to ensure that they actually engage their existing workforce in this process as they mm -hmm. start making, um, taking steps, if you like, to sort of transform the way they actually um, future plan for their workforce? Mm. Can they engage their existing talent? Mm, gosh, that's 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 the next uh, chapter two, isn't it? When we come together again. But uh, look, the, the reality is, as it comes to boards, and I'm going to isolate this feedback uh, to skills-based boards. Uh, I think there's still much work to be done to make sure that on those boards that you have a, a sufficient representation of people who have the skills and experience in. Um, HR practitioner or consulting roles where um, they've got a demonstrated uh, track record of, um, of you know, either people performance or um, organisational design with people very much at the centre of it. That's probably the first thing I would say. I think then it's the overall governance and working of the board because um, once you've got the right skills in place, are the committees operating in the right way? The subcommittees um, performing what they should be performing? Are they asking the right questions? So if it's operating at that level in terms of the strategic direction board level, um, then it's incumbent upon them through the CEO to ensure that management are operating, operating in that way. Um, and, you know, the signals I would want to see as an employer, first and foremost, is that there is a, you know, a chief people officer equivalent role in the organisation, that that role has a, a, a very clear operational mandate, as well as um, uh, clearly signposted and communicated strategic imperatives that are led from that function across the organisation. Where, where we're working with organisations and we're recruiting those types of roles if that role is buried a couple of layers down in the organisation um, or doesn't have a strategic input or um, engagement line to the board, um, invariably um, it, it's, it's a challenge for us to influence leadership and the outcomes that I think you're driving towards there for, from, from, from an employee perspective. So in the context of how this is all evolving and what it means for, say, at a board level, at a leadership level in organisations and also the existing talent in organisations, um, it'd be great to hear from you, Alicia, around your thoughts about what these changes mean for talent, particularly talent who are seeking opportunities um, sort of outside maybe their existing organisation. 
And how do these changes potentially help them in terms of finding alignment with the right organisations? Because the organisations they're looking to work with have done that workforce planning, so they know they're being better positioned with the right business. Absolutely. I think that's a great point. Sorry, I've got the song on my face now. Um, But I think you're quite right. I think the organisations that will be able to attract the talent and differentiate themselves in the marketplace will be the ones that have done workforce planning. So they're the ones Mm. that have identified exactly what they need now and into the future because what that gives is a certainty for the organisation and for its people. Uh, around how they're going to shape and shift. And that is so such a different place for organisations to be in because we've just seen years and years of restructures. Restructures used to kind of happen every maybe few years. Now they happen every few months or weeks. Like, it's crazy. There's so much uncertainty, even pre-COVID, inherent in organisations because they just don't look to the future. And so they're just always reacting, reacting. And it just sets such an instability within its organisation and then that goes out in their EVP and the way they hit the market. When they step back and they go, again, what's our purpose and what it's going to take to get there, they've got a really clear message on what exactly they need, what they mean by purpose and what's important to them. So then they go to the market and people know what they stand for. We had an organisation recently, it had this huge digitization uh, agenda it was attacking a whole new market within a, t- a traditional business model. And they went to the market and they couldn't get a single person to apply in the digital space because nobody thought their brand was cool or sexy. They wanted to work for eBay or Google and they'd just gone out without a proper plan of attack and they hadn't done any workforce planning and people would come in and they sense from you, you don't know where you're going. So why do I want to come on this journey with you? In stepping back and having that view, it sets a different message entirely. You get the talent, people come on the journey with you. And even if they're not there for life, because you know, well, we only need you for this two year period, you can still say, but we've got these other opportunities here and you've got 80% of the skills that we need here. So let's move you. Let's bring our workforce on the reskilling revolution. And it really goes to this social responsibility. And I think that's a, it's been a real missing piece for organisations. I think they talk a good talk, but until mm. you actually say, what do you need? And most organisations can't answer what workforce you need today, let alone in three or five years' time. Once they have that view, they can bring their workforce on that journey with them, whether they're current employees or future employees. They're engaging with them on a different level. They're reskilling them and they're being socially responsible. It's just such a game changer. So I think it's becoming absolutely clear that it's a very much a collaborative exercise. I love the reference to reskilling revolution and also the reference to values because I think there's certainly an interesting conversation there. I know I've certainly been exposed to situations where values in an organisation become something that's in, you know, a circle on the wall and no one actually lives it. So I think yeah. you're highlighting that's becoming more and more critical, particularly as people, to Amy's point, do seek more meaningful work in today's day and age. I'm mindful of time. So sort of as we work towards closing this out, it'd be great to hear from each of you. And maybe we'll start with yourself, Amy, in terms of what what are you most excited about? And maybe also what are you most fearful about in the context of the future of work? Yeah, look, I mean, to Alicia's point as well, just uh, just on that, you know, we're seeing uh, quite a few companies put a stake in the ground, like Atlassian and Facebook and Twitter to say things like, you know what, from now on, all of our workforce are going to be working remotely forever, right? And so it, it gives uh, employees a real sense of, you know, commitment to change and being able to go on that journey with them, which is great. 
I think, you know, moving forward from here, we're going to see a lot more uh, fluidity in terms of the roles that people do. I think the rule book just has to go out the window now. Like we've seen uh, Microsoft Japan increase productivity by doing a four-day work week. You know, they increase productivity by 40%. There's all of these different cases that are emerging now where I don't think organisations have a choice to go backwards. And if they do, it's to their detriment. You know, this is an opportunity for them to really move forward and reimagine uh, people's careers within their organisations and the roles um, and the way that people work. So I think that's what I'm most excited about is that we're going to see some real flexibility for people in their roles, not just come in an hour early if you feel like it. We're actually going to see people be able to maybe work towards their energy levels to really maximise their productivity which is really, really cool. Um, I guess one of my biggest fears is that people don't use that opportunity that's in front of them and the organisations don't use this opportunity and they do just revert back to the way things were because it feels more comfortable or it feels easier. Um, but I just don't think that's, that's going to serve them moving forward in this new world of work. And yourself, Russell, what are you most excited about and maybe most fearful about? Uh, yeah, look, I agree with uh, everything Amy said and, and I mean, the reality is, for me, I'm an eternal optimist. So I always look at the opportunity here. And as I say, you never waste a good crisis. Um, but, but I have to say what I'm hearing across the business community at the moment is huge amount of uncertainty. And, and what we run the risk of um, is in Australia is that we retreat into our shell. And we, we need to remember that, you know, for a population of 20 odd million, Australia absolutely bats above the average on a, on a global stage, particularly when it comes to um, innovation um, in a number of industries. I mean, our agribusiness is, is, a, is a leader in the world. So I think what we've got to do is focus on the positives um, in terms of areas that we know that we have a competitive advantage, um, invest in those and use the learnings from that in other parts of uh, society and community. But we also have to recognise that we run the risk of leaving people behind. And I think we've got a collective responsibility there for circling back, whether it's in our organisation with, with team members who are feeling uncertain and challenged, um, don't know what the future looks like, to make sure that um, first and foremost, they, they know there is a future and they have a, a part to play in that, but it may not be the part they play today. Uh, and I would say, you know, if you're if you're entering the latter stages of your career and you're seeing your work, um, uh, your career having to extend um, because of the pandemic and economic consequences, you know, that's tough to for, for, for people in their 50s and 60s to be told the job that you've done for the last 25, 30 years now has no value or limited value. Um, you know, those are the people that we have to think about. Um, how, how do we continue to keep them uh, engaged and economically productive? So, it, look, it's optimistic, but it, there's a cautionary note there that um, we'll only achieve that if we work um, collectively together. I love that. Alicia? Uh, yeah, I'm really excited about... I, I feel like this is such a catalyst for a new level of corporate consciousness. And I think that is just to me so exciting because it's not just about profit, it's about purpose, as I said, and it's really about how do we bring all of this exciting change to bear in a proactive way and move out of, but I, I think we have to move out of this react world that we've been in. I think that goes to my biggest fear is that organisations stick with the status quo. And I think um, that just doesn't serve anyone. And I think that, as Russell said, the fear is, 
that they just retreat back into this is how we've always done it, back into our shell and resist the change um, and, and don't start looking to the future in a proactive way, in a way that brings together all of this cool, amazing things that are on the table for us now. Uh, it really is a game changer for every organisation to step up and, and move into the future in such a powerful way. So I, I feel I feel optimistic too. Um, so I think you know the organisations that are surviving and thriving are going to be the ones that do this. Yeah. Well, I think this has been a brilliant conversation and I'm sure the audience have enjoyed it as much as hopefully all of you have as panellists on the show. I think some of the key takeaways are certainly um, make sure that you are collaborating with all major stakeholders and not thinking that this is some transformation that's just going to go away. Um, I've heard Amy say before on the show that if you don't change, you're going to be left behind. Um, and so I think that's a major takeaway from today's discussion. So thank you very much, Alicia Roach, Russell Fairbanks and Amy Smith, as always, for joining us on the panel today. Thank you very much to our audience. Please do make sure that you subscribe to the Reboot Show YouTube channel and we'll see you on the next segment. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Bye.